0: So my favorite genre of movies is historical like drama. You know, those kind of movies, right? It's pretty great. Tombstone, Master and Commander, Gladiator sort of, right? These are some pretty excellent movies, Um, but there's one kind of these movies. So it, it really is like, I love a historical drama, but there's one kind of historical drama that I like, I can't watch. And that's Holocaust movies. I've never seen Schindler's List. You know Schindler's List. Um, after I saw that movie, The Pianist, uh, I didn't sleep for weeks. Um, the part of Band of Brothers where they come across the concentration camp that they didn't know was there uh, still haunts me, right? And in that show, they come to the concentration camp and they, all the prisoners are there and they go and they tell them, hey, we're freeing you. But then the guy has to get up and tell them, um, in German, I think the guy who speaks German has to get up and tell him, but we have nowhere to put you so you have to go back into the camp for tonight until we figure it out, right? And and while he's like in tears and he's crying and there's people starving. Uh, Holocaust movies are, uh, the reality, I can't watch these movies, right? The reality of what the Nazis did was so bad I can't even watch actors pretending to do it. You know what I mean? Even though I know, okay, that's just a movie set and these guys, I can't watch it. Um, but what if there was a Holocaust movie where all of the prisoners in concentration camps were really happy and nothing bad ever happened? Imagine a movie like that. What was the fir- When I said that, what was the first thing that popped in your head? That would not be a very good movie, right? I could probably watch that movie, but it would be terrible. It'd be like spitting in the face of all these Holocaust victims. To have a movie that's like, I don't know. I thought this a little bit about MASH. Do you remember MASH? Like, oh, let's tell a bunch of jokes during the middle of this brutal war. Right? Like, imagine a sitcom in a, in a concentration camp. You'd be like, what? Everybody who has anything to do with this should be fired. Right? And should get in a lot of trouble. Um, here's the thing. I think when a lot of preachers talk about sin in sermons and reading through the Bible and stuff, they take the R-rated story of what's really happening in the world and what human history really looks like, and they try to make it into a Disney movie because they don't want to upset people. They take something that's super serious and is awful, and they try to pretend like it's no big deal just to make it a little, more, a little bit more um, palatable. And when folks do that, it's really awful, and it doesn't do justice to the, the picture that the Bible gives us of sin, the picture that sin presents. The Bible says sin is ugly and you need to look at it. And we go, I don't want to watch Schindler's List. I don't want to watch these movies. Like I don't want to see the truth, right, of what's going on here. So I'm just going to watch this Disney movie. The Bible never says anything close to sin is no big deal, right? There's nothing like that in Scripture. The Bible says the opposite, actually. It says sin is the biggest deal is the biggest deal in the whole world because sin and injustice hurts real people. It hurts us, but most importantly, it is rebellion against our creator. Today's passage, what we're going to read is to sin what Schindler's list was to the real events of the Holocaust. It paints a really tough, accurate picture that is hard to look at. Okay. This is not, this is not the fun passage of like uh, I don't know, uh, you know, from the Book of Acts, where there's a lady named Dorcas. That's a really fun passage to preach because I get to say Dorcas like 50 times, you know, and it's almost impossible to teach junior hires. By the way, the passage about Dorcas. Uh, this is not like a fun, happy-go-lucky, light passage, um, but this is—it's tough. This is also why we read books the way we do here at the porch, because there is no hist- There's no preacher in the history of the world who wasn't preaching through the book of Ezekiel, who picked this passage, Who was flipping through and goes, you know what we should do on Sunday? We should pick this random passage. Charles Spurgeon actually said, a minister, talking about chapter 16 that we're going to read today, we're going to read the end of 14, 15 is really short, and then 16. Uh, Spurgeon said, a minister could scarcely even read it in public. That's what Spurgeon said. Not just preach it this one's even hard to just read through. So these these chapters are not going to show up in the Jesus Storybook Bible. They're not going to be in the videos that Melissa and Wendy do with the kids in the back. There's no veggie tales about chapter 16. But if we want to paint an accurate picture of what the Bible tells us about who we are and how ugly our sin is, we need to read these kind of chapters. This is not the stuff to skip over. So we actually, this is one of the, in the book of Ezekiel, we're going to have a few weeks coming up here where we have a a passage with a lot of reading, more than we normally do. So when we read Luke, there was a handful of times where it was like five verses. Jesus walks up and then he spits in some guy's face and now he can see again. I'm paraphrasing. But, um, you know, that's just a couple of verses. The, there's a handful of these. We want to read the whole section, so we're going to do it all in one go. So when we do these um, whole sections, the first thing I need you to do is we're not going to stop and explain everything the way that we normally do. We're going to read some bigger chunks. So I need you to really pay attention while we're reading uh, and while this stuff is on the back, uh, on the, the screen there. Um, where, where was I? Oh, yeah. So chapter 16, when we get to that, that's one of the longest chapters in the Bible. This chapter, so we're actually reading three parts of chapters today, but uh, just chapter 16 alone is longer than six of the minor prophets. Okay, so this is a, there's a lot of verses in here today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do this a little bit different. Normally, uh, the way sermons kind of work uh, is we read the text, and I take you on this amazing, life-changing journey of spiritual truth where I explain the nuance of the text and the Greek and Hebrew, and we get into the cultural stuff, and, you know, we really get into it. Um, and then you guys leave and go, wow, that was life-changing and amazing, and I can't wait for next Sunday. I think that's what usually happens. And, uh, okay. so, and then at the end of the sermon, I, or I don't always tell you where we're heading up front, and then at the end of the sermon, we kind of package it all together, and we talk about a theme or a topic, and we say, how do we apply this uh, to ourselves? Today, uh, we're going to do this a little different. There's no fancy ending at the end of the sermon. Basically, pretty close to when we get to the end of the text is when we're done with this sermon. The, the journey is what we're gonna do here. And while we're on this journey, um, this is what I want you to do. I want you to just think about your life. So everybody right now, think in your mind, I want you to pick something that's sinful that you struggle with. We've all got something. If you just said, well, I don't struggle with anything, then being a liar and being proud, that's the thing, I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> so pick something you struggle with, whatever it is. Um, I want you to think about that, and I want you to think about how many times you convince yourself that it's not really bad. You do this thing, whatever it is, it's a habitual sin, it's something else, something you've struggled with your whole life, I don't know. I want you to keep that thing in your mind while we read this whole passage, and as we read through, this is what's going to happen. This is all we're going to do. We're going to look at it, and we're going to go, that thing that I sin, like however it is that I sin, something I think, something I say, or something I do, right? One of those three, sin is one of those kind of three things. That sin that I've convinced myself is not bad is actually way worse than I thought. So we just want, I want you to pick something now, and as we go through this passage, think about that, and then we're going to end. That's the whole sermon, right? There's no There's no John Calvin said this at the end of this sermon. We're just going straight into it. Your sin sucks and it's uglier than you think. And Ezekiel is going to tell you that. All right. So we're in the middle of chapter 14. Um, We're in verse 12. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, suppose a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its supply of bread, to send famine through it, and to wipe out both people and animals from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would rescue only themselves by their righteousness. This is the declaration of the Lord. Um, so I think, let's just set the context here. I think what was happening was the folks were thinking, sure, our sin is bad, but there's still some good folks left in Jerusalem. And so surely God is going to save the city because of the good folks that are still in Jerusalem. He, Ezekiel's been talking about God's going to destroy Jerusalem, God's going to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And they're thinking, no, 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 there's still some good people there. And so God says, even if these three guys were there, I would still do it. They would just save themselves, and I would destroy the rest of the city. The three guys he picks are Noah, Daniel, and Job. Everybody knows Noah, right? The flannel graph. For some reason, this is a children's story, right? God kills everybody on the earth except for a couple of people. Um, So that's the first guy. We know about him, Noah and the ark. Everybody knows about Job, what with the boils and everything, Uh, if you know the story of Job where he's a follower of God and anyway Satan messes with him it's a whole thing there's a whole book about it you should read sometime the third guy though is this guy Daniel now this is a little more tricky because Daniel and Ezekiel were taken in exile together to the land and so a lot of folks say it's really weird because the whole book of Daniel hadn't really been written yet and he wasn't the old like the lion's den had not happened yet so what do we know about Daniel why is he here So there's some scholars who kind of attack the Bible at this point, but I think it actually makes sense because at the very beginning of the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel was taken to the palace while the rest of the people were taken to like the farming villages. And so everybody would have known the couple of people that got to end up in the palace. And uh, like I said, the lions then had not happened yet, but the one story that had happened was when they first showed up and they said, you have to eat all this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And Daniel said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And they had this whole thing, and they ended up not having to eat that meat, right? And everybody in the Jewish community, I guarantee that story got passed around. And so um, uh, the thought is, I bet this is the guy. I, this is the Daniel, right? There's some other theories and stuff. But I think Daniel was like a cultural hero at this time. And so the, the idea is, God, even if these three guys were in Jerusalem, your sin is so ugly I'm still going to destroy that city and I'll just save them, right? And then I'll squash the rest. And so if I send a famine, that's the natural consequence of a siege, right? Where that's what he says first. I'll send a famine, food is scarce. You have no access to farmland during a siege because the farmland's all outside the city walls. So the first thing that's gonna happen is everybody's gonna starve. And then he keeps going in verse 15. This judgment is coming, it's well-deserved. Suppose I allow dangerous animals to pass through the land and depopulate it so that it becomes desolate with no one passing through it for fear of the animals. Even if these three were in it, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, they could not rescue their sons or daughters. They alone would be rescued, but the land would be left desolate. So the next thing he says is, okay, first, in the first section, what if I sent a famine? It would be deserved. The second thing is, what if I sent wild animals? So, um, so I'm going to grab that. Once a city is destroyed, you can imagine if you've seen a movie with a battle um, where, you know, it, just a battlefield or a siege or whatever, there's a lot of dead bodies everywhere. Um, and in the ancient world, before they killed all the animals in the whole world, there were a lot of animals around. And in Israel specifically, they had lions, they had all sorts of stuff, right? Lions and bears and stuff they don't have there anymore. And these animals would come and they would eat all the bodies, right? So God says, what if I sent these animals to kind of ravage the city? Um, with that imagery of like uh, the walking dead or the last of us, or that one where Will Smith has to kill his dog, What's that movie called? Uh, what is it? I am, legend. I am Legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those kind of, you know, empty city movies with the animal. So he says that could happen. Verse 17. So we've got uh, famine, animals, or suppose I bring a sword against the land and say, let a sword pass through it. So I wipe out both people and animals from it. Even if these three men were in it as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, they could not rescue their sons or daughters, but they alone would be rescued. So again... Now he moves on to, what if I sent an army and swords, military might? Um, The Babylonian army was the real deal. They were brutal. Um, uh, They were the most powerful army of the day. And uh, armies back then, I mean, armies now are not great, but, you know, we at least have the Geneva Conventions, right? And things are, when when an army sweeps through, it's a little bit better, you know. But, I mean, back then, it was brutal. It was burn the place to the ground, take everybody as slaves, right? Like, I mean, God says, what if I sent an army like that? It would still, your sin is so ugly, it would be deserved. That's how bad your sin is. Verse 19, he keeps going. Or, here's a fourth one. Suppose I send a plague into the land and pour out my wrath on it with its bloodshed to wipe out both people and animals from it. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live the declaration of the Lord God, they could not rescue their son or daughter. They would rescue only themselves by their righteousness, Sickness was also a big natural consequence of a siege and an army coming through. People would be locked up in the city together, they would start getting hungry, and then people would start dying of sickness. Verse 21, for this is what the Lord God says, how much worse will it be when I send my four devastating judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, dangerous animals, and plague, in order to wipe out both people and animals from it. So what God says is that these four things that are coming for the city of Jerusalem are not accidents. These are not just sort of normal things that happen. These are judgments, sword, famine, animals, and plague. He calls them specifically this, that, that grouping of these four things was very common in the ancient world. Um, that's not unique to the Bible, but it's just a way to say all kinds of judgment is coming for you. Verse 22, even so there, would be, uh, there will be survivors left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. One commentator pointed this out that what Nebuchadnezzar did was when he took people in waves, exiles in waves, he split up families. And so some people that are in Babylon now with Ezekiel were part of that second wave of the exiles, probably. And then some were still in Jerusalem. Some of the Israelites were still in Jerusalem. Some of these exiles in Babylon still had kids and family living in Jerusalem. And so what God is saying here is uh, very personal and terrifying that this judgment that's coming, it's not just some, this was not just some, um, uh, it's not a story, right? To them, this is like, this is your uncle, this is your nephew, this is your daughter, your grandkids, whatever, are still in Jerusalem. But again, what he says is what's happening here is it's not unjust. It's totally deserved. Look at the, uh, let's see, the middle of 22. Indeed, they will come out to you, and you will observe their conduct and actions. Then you will be consoled about the devastation that I have brought on Jerusalem, about all that, sorry, about all I have brought on it. They will bring you consolation when you see their conduct and actions, and you will know that it was not without cause that I have done what I did to it. This is the declaration of the Lord. So what happens is there's a battle in Jerusalem, a ton of people die, and the rest are taken captive and brought to Babylon. We're going to read about this when we get all the way to chapter 33. Um, And what God says is when that caravan of exiles shows up in Babylon and they start telling you what life was like in Jerusalem before the fall, you're going to look at them and you're going to say, yes, what God did here was just. The same is true with the final judgment that this, this judgment ultimately points to in a greater way. Like the destruction of Jerusalem was bad. The judgment of people in eternity is even worse. And right now, we have a very warped view of sin as fallen human beings. Our fallen hearts minimize the, sin, uh, minimize the weight of sin. And at that time, in the final judgment, nobody in hell is going to sit there and go, I don't deserve this. That's what the Bible tells us. Um, and nobody in the kingdom of God, right, nobody in eternal life is going to look at what's going on in hell and say God is unjust. That's not going to happen. God is always perfectly just, and he's perfectly good, and he's perfectly right in every single thing that he does, even when we don't think so. We look at this and go, you had to destroy a whole city? Come on, God, really? And the point of that is that part of us that thinks that when we read passages like this, God says the only reason you think that is because your fallen and broken heart doesn't see the world the way it really is. You think sin is like not that big of a deal, but sin is a huge deal. Sin is massive. And so to make the point hit even harder, he gives Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel these two images. The first is the people in Jerusalem. He says you're like a useless piece of a vine that's good for nothing. And then in chapter 16, okay, here's the part where you're not allowed to read this in church. He says you're a whore. Right. So we'll get there. Right. That's the words he uses. Hey, I didn't say that. it's in the Bible. You can't get mad. All right. Verse 5, chapter 15. Let's go. Um, then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how do you how does the wood of the vine that branch among the trees of the forest compare to any other wood? Can wood be taken from it or to make something useful or can you make a peg from it to hang things on? So the Bible is full of farming imagery that we don't understand because we live in a city with no plants. There's like 11 trees and they all fell down a couple weeks ago. And now, <laughs> now they're gone. Um, so, but we can kind of understand this. Um, take two pieces of wood. A two by four, that's a piece of wood. And uh, I Googled it. And um, a thin piece of a vine. And what Ezekiel says is one of those pieces is useful, and one is completely useless. And the only thing that that little piece of wood is good for is fuel for the fire. Look at verse 4. In fact... It is put into the fuel as fire. The fire devours both its end and the middle is charred. Can it be useful for anything? Even when it was uh, whole, it could not be made into a useful object. How much less can it ever be made into anything useful when the fire has devoured it and it is charred? Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire is fuel. So I will give up the residents of Jerusalem. I will turn against them. <coughs> they may have escaped from the fire, but it will still consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh when I turn against them, and I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So let's be honest. This is harsh and this is heavy, and God through Ezekiel is saying, The the people of Jerusalem have hope right now. They're thinking that I'm going to come and I'm going to save them and that there's no way I'm going to let the the Babylonians destroy the temple and destroy the city. That hope that they have, they should not have that hope. That's what God is telling his people. They're sinful and they're useless. So I'm going to throw them into the fire. Now, maybe a more modern example, if this was written to us in our culture, I like to do this, right? To think about what's an image that we would understand a little bit better than a piece of wood is you, God says to the people, you are like a floppy disk. You're useless and my MacBook doesn't even have a floppy drive. So what do we do with floppy disks? We throw them in the garbage, right? The e-waste, okay, we throw them in the e-waste so I don't get yelled at by Kayla. Or my family has a story that, Uh, I think it was my great-uncle Stan. He grew up in the Depression. You know, if you remember these guys, they grew up in the Depression. You know, anybody have a grandpa or something? And um, he never threw anything away, and he was really organized. And so in his, like, office area or somewhere, he had a little piece, he had, like, a little shoebox with a label on it that said, pieces of string too small to use. Right? But he said, I'm not getting rid of this piece of string that I can never use for anything. Right? Uh, That's what God would say. That's the image. You're useless. You're a tiny little piece of string that you can't tie a knot with. You're a floppy disk that nobody uses anymore. Except, by the way, I'm pretty sure that, like, the nuclear guys are still using, like, floppy disks and stuff, right? That's terrifying. Anyway, watch 60 Minutes. It's on there. Okay, keep going. So the image is you're being useless, or you're useless. I have no, you're, you're, You had a purpose. Your purpose was to be a light to the nations. And if you're not going to do that, I have no use for you right? You're a piece of string too small to use. So now the image flips. So we're, going, we're moving on. First, I'm going to send these four judgments. The next image is your useless piece of wood. The, the final image is the unfaithful wife. Okay. So verse one, chapter 16, this is the longest part. You ready for this? This is a couple of pages in my Bible, 63 verses. Okay. So we're going to read some pretty big chunks here. Um, Verse one and two, the word of the Lord came to me again, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. So he tells Ezekiel specifically, confront Jerusalem. Ezekiel's message is to the exiles. He's giving it to the exiles, expecting the word to get back to the people in Jerusalem. And he does so with this long, elaborate story, this long, elaborate picture of a man who rescues and then marries this young woman who ends up being ungrateful and unfaithful. Before we get into this, though, let's take a little sidebar. We need to talk about something. We need to remember that the Bible was not written to us in our culture with our sensibilities. This story is more than 2,500 years old, and it's told to Near Eastern people who had very different customs around the institution of marriage that we have now. Women in this culture usually married very young. And men were a little bit older when they got married. Women in this culture were a lot more dependent on who they live with. So whether it was like their father or then to you know the husband. Um, And so in telling this story, God is using the customs of the people that he was talking to to make his point Um, This story makes no comment on the world or the practices that we're about to read about. Um, The Bible has a lot to say about the role and the value of women. Um, It's just this is not the chapter where that happens. We talked about that a lot in Luke with the upside down kingdom and the women disciples and um, a lot of that stuff. And we'll read more about that in the book of Acts when we get to Acts at some point. Here, God is just using imagery from an institution and cultural practices that they would have all understood to try to make his point. You suck, and you are like an unfaithful wife. That's the point of this whole chapter, okay? So let's try and fly through this story. Uh, 60 verses, ready? Here we go. Uh, Verse 3, you are to say, this is what the Lord God says to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite, or Hettite, Hettite, whatever that is. Anybody know what I thought of as soon as I read that sentence? Your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. Yeah, right? From Monty Python. I Okay, so I have this Bible I write all my notes in. You know, like it's like I've been doing this for years. And I opened it up. I haven't used it in a couple months. I opened that Bible up. I read my Bible more than every couple months, by the way. That specific Bible. I opened it up and I was reading that yesterday, and in the margins it said, Your mother was a hamster, and your father smells of elderberries. At some point I wrote that down. Anyway. For real, though, this is serious. We're not joking. Uh, here's the story. Um, this whole story is told to the city of Jerusalem. And when you think of Jerusalem, you're, you think of a Jewish city, right? You think of King David and Solomon and all this stuff. But the, and you think of the temple and Jesus and whatever. But the truth is, Jerusalem was a Canaanite city until David took it and made it his capital. So to begin the whole parable, God says, this is your... Your background, you had pagan parents. You're not really even part of the people of God. Verse four, as for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day when you were born and you were not washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one cared enough about you to do even one of these things out of compassion for you. you were, but you were thrown out into the open field because you were despised on the day you were born. So this is awful, but let me tell you about it. In the ancient world, having a girl wasn't what people wanted. You wanted boys because boys could work the field for a lot of different reasons. And so often what they would do is when somebody would have a girl, this is terrible, but this is exactly what happened. I'm just, I'm just giving you the facts. They would take the girl and they would walk outside of the town and they would leave him in a field or they would leave him by the side of the road, the baby, little baby to die from exposure. Now, this was from a completely non-spiritual way, This is one of the ways that, like, if you're looking at just sociology, right, not like the spirit working and all this stuff, this is one of the ways the early church grew. Because what they would do is they thought everybody is made in the image of God. And they would walk the streets at night with lanterns, listening for crying babies. And then they would find these babies, they would pick them up, and they would adopt them. And then all of a sudden, all the girls in the entire empire were Christians and Christianity grew because of the love that God's people showed for these babies. Um, anyway, back here in Ezekiel, God says to Jerusalem, "You were like one of these babies. Your pagan parents didn't want you, and they didn't clean you up. They didn't do any of this stuff. I don't know. Everybody was in the comments was talking about um, in the commentary and scholars and stuff. They were talking about some of this. We don't know, like why you're rubbing salt on a baby. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, um, it's not a stake. You know, this guy on YouTube who drops salt. On the, it's not like, uh, but." Whatever it was, this was the practice to take care of a baby. They didn't do any of that. They took you out and they put you out to die. Verse 6, I passed by you. I saw you thrashing around in your blood. And I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. I made you thrive like plants in the field. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were stark naked. So, again, this is the thing that we don't want to push this imagery too far, you know, and what's going on. But let's just talk about the story. I saw you there as a baby, so I took you, I cleaned you up, and then you grew up and matured. Verse 8, then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God, and you became mine. Okay, so if we're honest, this is where the story starts to get weird. Uh, in our culture, we would be up at arms here, right? What is happening here? Um, what's going on is we're kind of, God is kind of mixing pictures to explain what's happening. Um, in one part of it, he's more like a parent. He's like an adoptive parent. And then the, the image moves later on. What well, goes from a vine to a parent to marriage, he's just using all these images. and He's kind of mashing them up together. Um, then the picture, right, it switches from parent to romantic relationship. Now, God is not, you know, who was it, uh, Woody Allen, married his adoptive kid. That's not what's going on here. See, everybody in the whole, in the whole congregation just went, ooh. <laughs> like everybody made that same face, right? Okay, so again, let's not push all this too far. You get the imagery, right? At one point, God is like a loving parent who takes care of his people. At another point, he's like, I'll use the image of being married to the, to the city of Jerusalem. Um, And then he says, I spread my cloak over you, which was like, in our culture, that was, was the ancient way of proposing. It's like, then I gave you a ring, you know, that we'd all go, oh, I know what that means. Okay, keep going. Verse nine, I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and provided you with fine leather sandals. I also wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry, putting bracelets on your wrists and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose. Everybody see? Melissa, oh, she's not in here. Nose rings are biblical, says it right there. Earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was made of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained royalty. So this guy, whoever it is, is a king. So by marrying this girl, she's now become royalty. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord. So God clothed her, gave her everything she ever wanted, food, clothing, all the streaming services, right? She had Disney, she had Hulu, she had Paramount, all of them. And she became popular, millions of followers on Instagram. She had influencer deals. And all of that went to her head, verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty. She forgot her history. She had this great life. And instead of trusting God and being grateful, she ended up saying, yeah, I'm getting what I deserve. But it gets even worse than that. Keep going. You trusted in your beauty and you acted like a prostitute because of your fame. You lavished your sexual favors on everyone who passed by. Your beauty became his. You took something, some of your clothing and made colorful high places for yourself and you engaged in prostitution on them. These places should not have been built and this should never have happened. You also took your beautiful jewelry made from the gold and silver that I had given you and you made male images so that you could not so that you could engage in prostitution with them. Then you took your embroidered clothing to cover them and set oil and incense before them. The food that I gave you, the fine flour, oil and honey that I fed you, you set it before them as a pleasing aroma. This is what happened. This is the declaration of the Lord God, of the I am. So with a loving husband at home, a husband who had saved your life and given you everything, you turned to a life of prostitution. The CSB, we're reading the CSB for the book, just for the book of Ezekiel. The ESV is the English Standard Version. It's kind of the main translation we use of the porch. The Christian Standard Version is a little more thought for thought. Not quite. But it's just a little easier to read big, long chunks. But in this section, I actually don't like what the CSB says because it softens it. It says, you acted like a prostitute. That's bad, right? But it doesn't have the force that, like, from what I read, the original Hebrew has. And the ESV hits it right at home. It says, you played the whore. That's a strong, like, mm, did the pastor just say horror from the, yeah, he, that's the other, that's, it's what, you're supposed to think that. You're supposed to think, what? And then it gets really graphic in what he says. You became a cult prostitute sleeping with anybody who wanted to. I gave you food and stuff. You sacrificed it to the false god. I gave you jewelry, and you melted it all down and then made sex toys out of it. That's what it says. I'm not making this up. It's right there in the Bible. You can read it. Send your emails to God, not to me. Um, But again, it gets worse, right? That already seems bad, right? But here we go. Look at this, verse 20. You even took your sons and your daughters that you bore me and you sacrificed them to these images as food. Wasn't your prostitution enough? You slaughtered my children and gave them up when you passed them through the fire and images. In all your detestable practices and acts of prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were stark naked and thrashing around in your blood. So, the husband in this picture, right, the, and the wife, they have kids. And then she not only is cheating and acting like a prostitute, she takes the kids and then sacrifices them in fire to the false gods that she made out of the jewelry and stuff. You know, she melted it down and made these idols. And he says, You forgot that you were the kid that nobody wanted. And now, you, you know, it's the, the victim turned abuser kind of situation. You're doing. You're you're killing these kids just like somebody tried to kill you when you were a kid. Twenty-three. Then after all your evil, woe, woe to you, the declaration of the Lord God. You built yourself a mound and made yourself an elevated place in every square. You built elevated you built your elevated place at the head of every street, and you turned your beauty into a detestable thing. You spread your legs to everyone who passed by and increased your prostitution. You engaged in promiscuous acts with Egyptian men, your well-endowed neighbors and increased your prostitution to anger me. There's a verse nobody has tattooed on their left arm, right? You're well adowed Egyptian men where you're prostitu- you know. Again, the image isn't just prostitution because in our culture when we think of prostitution, right, we think of somebody walking down the street in fishnet stockings or you know, we just kind of have this picture from TV in our mind. Back then, though, a lot of prostitution was really tied to false religion. There were a lot of Canaanite religions where you would go And you would engage in sexual acts with a cult prostitute, like a priest or a priestess or whatever. And it was like part of the worship service was having sex with one of these. So when we think of prostitution, we think of that. When they thought of prostitution, they thought of that and the idolatrous part of it, right? All right, keep going. Verse 27. So, uh, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your provisions I gave you over to the desire of those who hate you the Philistine women who uh, who were embarrassed by your indecent conduct then you engaged in prostitution with the Assyrian men because you were not satisfied even though you did this with them you were still not satisfied so you extended your prostitution to Chaldea that's the Babylonians uh, the land of merchants but you were not even satisfied with this So you have a husband who wants to take care of you, but instead you're moving from guy to guy to guy to the point there. even it says the Philistine women were embarrassed by this, which in that ancient culture was kind of a way, like if I said, like if somebody said like, you know, you're so promiscuous or whatever that even, I don't know, like uh, call girls are like, what is she doing? You know, like it's something like that. Like that's the idea here. It's so bad that even the people who should be Okay with it are upset by what's going on verse 30 how your heart was inflamed with lust the declaration of the Lord God when you did all these things the act of a brazen prostitute building your mound at the head of every street and making your elevated place in every square but you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment you adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband men give gifts to prostitutes but you gave gifts to all your lovers you bribed them to come to you from all around for your sexual favors. So you were the opposite of the other women in your acts of prostitution. No one solicited you. When you paid a fee instead of being the one uh, being the one sorry, instead of one being paid to you, you were the opposite. Normally, a prostitute gets paid. But the wickedness was so great here that instead of getting paid, she paid the Johns. By the way. okay, sidebar here real quick. Who decided the guy that solicits a prostitute is named John? <laughs> Okay? Just saying. And who decided that a toilet should be called John? And who decided unidentified dead bodies on the side of the road are John? I'm just saying, me and John and the other John, we're taking a stand. We officially voted, and all those things now are called Dennis. All right, let's keep going. Anyway, back to the story. There, I'm just... All right, therefore, keep going. Back to the serious part. Uh, therefore you prostitute hear the word of the Lord This is what the Lord God says because of your lust because your lust was poured out and your nakedness exposed by your acts of prostitution with your lovers and because all your detestable idols and the blood of your children that you gave them I am therefore going to gather all your lovers you pleased all those uh, all those you loved as well as those you hated I will gather them against you from around uh, and expose your nakedness to them so they will see you completely naked. I will judge you the way I will judge you the way adulteresses and those who shed blood are judged. Then I will bring about the shedding of your blood in jealous wrath. I will hand you over to them and they will demolish your mounds and tear down your elevated places. They will strip off your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you to stone you. And cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses and execute judgments against you in the sight of many women. I will stop you from being a prostitute, and I will never again pay fees and you will never again pay fees for lovers. So I will satisfy my wrath against you, and my jealousy will turn away from you. Then I will be calm and no longer angry, because you did not remember the days of your youth, but you enraged me with all these things. I will also bring your conduct down on your own head. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Haven't you committed depravity in addition to all your detestable practices? So it's a big, long paragraph to basically say this. Your sin demands justice. Your sin demands wrath, and that's what's coming. 44. This is some of the biggest, like, long sections we're reading together. All right, 44. Look, everyone who uses a proverb will quote a proverb against you, like mother, like daughter you are like the daughter of your mother who despised her husband and children. You are the sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite. I think that's a Hittite, and the CSB changes that. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father was an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your sister, your younger sister was Sodom, who lived with uh, her daughters in the south of you. Didn't you walk in the ways and do the detestable practices, do their detestable practices? It was only a short time before all of your ways and more were, corrupt, were as corrupt as theirs. As I live, the declaration of the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as you and your daughters have. Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable acts before me, so I removed them when I saw this. But Samaria did not commit even half of your sins. You multiplied your detestable practices beyond theirs and made your sisters appear righteous by all the detestable acts that you've committed. Uh, You must also bear your disgrace since you have helped your sisters out, for they appear more righteous than you because of your sins, which you committed more detestably than they did. So you also, being ashamed and bear your disgrace, since you have made your sisters appear righteous. So now the image switches to family imagery, and it says your mom was a Canaanite, and your older sister was Samaria, uh, which was the, um, the, city of the, the capital city of the northern kingdom that was destroyed and ha- at this point had already been taken into exile, um, and you're just like your sister Sodom. We all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And generally, when people think of Sodom and Gomorrah, they think of sexual sin and the things with the, where they were, um, you know, all that stuff from the book of Genesis. Uh, but here, Ezekiel says, yeah, all that stuff's true, but he even piles on. She, had daughter, she and her daughters had pride. This is the sin of Sodom. Pride, plenty of food, comfortable security, and they didn't support the poor and needy. So not only were they doing all the sexual sin and the worship and the stuff, uh, but they also were just not taking care of the poor people that they were supposed to take care of. And what God says is these two are like Proverbs, like everybody knows these are the wicked cities and they're, you're worse, right? You're worse than, I don't know what's our wicked city. You're worse than Las Vegas or I guess San Francisco is the other one, right? We, you know, but you're worse than San Francisco, you know, whatever. Like um, you get the idea. And so um, this would be like a convicted judge or a, I'm sorry, a judge in a, in a court case with a convicted murderer or something during sentencing sentencing saying you know how Ted Bundy ate people and you know how Ted Kaczynski blew people up I did those cases and you're worse than them whoo you know that guy did something to somebody right if you hear something like that that's what God says all right so let's stop for a second and feel the weight of all of this for a second this whole chapter is filled with very graphic language um, which is all just this fancy way to say your sin is uglier than you think it is You think my sin is no big deal. You think it's just this little thing that doesn't um, uh, really affect a lot of people. It doesn't matter. Let me show you what God says about your sin. No one is righteous. This is from Romans. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom The venom of asps is on their lisp is on their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes Right? God says sin is a big deal on um, the day actually this week we celebrated one year since we adopted heaven I can say her name on the podcast now because we adopted her and they can't stop me Uh, So we adopted Heaven a year ago. This week we just celebrated. We went to Benny Hanna's and the guy threw shrimps into his hat, you know, the whole thing. Um, And the day we adopted her, we went down to the courthouse, which was right by City Hall. And we had to go. She had this fancy adoption dress. She was very excited about her little adoption dress. And we had to go through security at the front of the courthouse. And the sheriff's deputy, he said to me, man, I'm glad it's Monday. I think it was a Monday. I don't really remember. But I'm glad it's Monday. Monday is adoption day. You know what I hate? Fridays. And I was like, why? Friday is divorce court. And I went, "Oh," <laughs> And I could just see the sadness in his eyes. Every Friday or what, I don't really remember the days. I totally made that up. But whatever days it was, I think it was Friday, but uh, he has to deal with couples who hate each other, right? Who show up every week and they yell at each other. In a situation, like this picture of divorce is bad, right? In a situation where a husband... Uh, lavished his wife with love and care, and she cheated on him dozens of times. What do you expect from something like that? You expect an ugly divorce. You expect fighting over money, and you expect I'm keeping the dog, right? This picture that we've read in this chapter is the next step here should be this is a very ugly divorce. This is horrible. And God talks about judgment. And he talks about stuff. Um, and our natural feelings are telling us as we get to this next part, brace for impact, because this is about to be brutal but look at how it ends. Verse, let's see, where are we? 53. I will restore their fortunes. What? The fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and those of Samaria and her daughters. I will also restore your fortunes among them. So you will bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you did when you were um, comforted, when you comforted them. As for your sister Sodom and her sister's I'm sorry, and her daughters and Samaria and her daughters will return to their former state. You and your daughters will also return to your former state. <clears throat> Didn't you treat your, Sodom, your sister Sodom as an object of scorn when you were proud, before your wickedness was exposed? It was like the time when you were scorned by the daughters of Aram, And all those around her and by the daughters of the Philistines and those who treated you with contempt from every side. You yourselves must bear the consequence of your depravity and detestable practices. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord God says. I will deal with you according to what you have done since you have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. So first he says, yeah, this this judgment for the people of God is coming. But, But look at verse 60. But I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish a permanent covenant with you. This whole section here is about the ugliness of sin, about the seriousness of judgment, and how does it end? You've been playing the whore, you've been doing this and all that. And I will establish a permanent covenant with you, not with anger, not with fury and wrath, but with a sweetness and a gentleness, with grace. In terms of the first deal, the first covenant the people of God made, with God, it didn't go very well. And so God says, what we're going to do is we're going to start over and we're going to renew our vows. We're going to do this again. We're going to get remarried and we're going to try this over. And I'm going to make a new deal with you. Verse 61, the last couple of verses here. Then you will remember your ways, sorry, wait, uh, 61 and two. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and younger sisters and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. This is the point. You're gonna look at your sin, and you're gonna be ashamed as individuals and as a community, and then you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the I am. And this is the goal. Remember, we talked about 70-something times the phrase pops up in these 48 chapters of Ezekiel, and then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the point, to bring the people back to God so that we can glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's the Westminster Catechism. What's the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to give him glory and to enjoy him while we do it. But do you see the problem? How? How can we do that when we're wrapped in sin, when we're drowning in sin, when, when our sin is so ugly? Right? We are the cheating spouses. We're the useless vines of people who deserve wrath. So how can we be made right with a perfectly holy God who can't be around that stuff? What can we do? The answer is nothing. You can do nothing about it. It's not what we do. It's what he does. And this is the last verse of chapter 16, verse 63. So that when I make atonement for you all and have done uh, for, sorry, when I make atonement for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth again because of your disgrace. This is the declaration of the Lord God. This ugly chapter that shows us how terrible sin is. That Charles Spurgeon said you can't even read it in public if you're a pastor, right? He's talking about sex toys and prostitution and, you know, this terrible chapter, how does it end with the gospel? Now, I told you at the beginning that there was no fancy ending to this. That was kind of a lie. I mean, there's a little bit of a fancy ending to this very simple sermon. For 90-something verses, it goes like this. Your sin is ugly and so are you. Your sin deserves judgment and so do you. Your sin is worse than you know, and because you're such a bad sinner, you like to convince yourself that it's not that bad, but it is that bad, and we're supposed to read this and kind of flinch, waiting for the blow to come, and then what comes? A hug. What comes when we, we flinch back, thinking we're going to get punched in the face, and then God reaches out and gives us a hug, and he says, look, I know your sin is ugly, and I know that you can't handle it, because you can't. There's nothing you can do about it, so I will make atonement. That's what it says there. I'll make atonement. I'll pay the debt. And this is exactly what Christ does for his people. All the ugliness of sin, right? In which It's uglier than we even understand. We'll get to understand it, I think, in eternity a little more. But the ugliness of our sin was put on Jesus, and then the wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross so that we don't have to go through that, so that we could be forgiven. 2 Corinthians, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Last week we talked about liturgy. Do you remember that if you were here? And we talked about how every week we sh- the point of church is to gather, or was that last week, the week before, whatever it was. We show up and we preach the gospel to each other. It's just very simple. There's, church is not complicated. We show up and we go, you're a sinner and so am I. And uh, good news, uh, Jesus is a great savior. And that's what this sermon is. It's simple. There's no application to this sermon. There's no here's five steps to go home and be a better husband or, you know, whatever. (laughs) That's not what we're doing here. There's no fancy Hebrew word studies, no interesting twist at the end. It's just the gospel. It's just your sin is ugly. Your sin is awful. But Jesus is greater. He's a greater savior than you are a sinner. That's the whole thing. Let's pray. That's the end of it.